together. Father, indeed, our hearts cry out with praise to you. And Lord, we ask that as we look together into your word, you would cause us to continue to worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what the author of Hebrews meant about how you have revealed yourself, about who the Lord Jesus is, and about how we should respond. Lord, give us a grasp, a mental grasp of these things, but we pray that deeper than that, Lord, you would cause our hearts to resonate with how you have revealed yourself and who Christ is and how we should respond. And Lord, we pray that you would make us people who want with everything that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that we might dwell in the, in the house of the Lord, the new heaven and new earth, the cosmic temple forever. Lord, we pray that you would do this and much that we can't ask or think through your word now, by the power of your spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. I would invite you to turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. If you were here last week, we completed the book of Exodus, and we'll be starting into Hebrews. And before we actually start into the text, I want to make fun of my sermon title for a moment. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen the ter- sermon title, but the title of this sermon is The Representation of His Substance. And uh, Jeff will tell you that's a terrible title. The representation of his subs. I don't know how, I mean, I sent the title to Matt. I don't know. I really don't know how it got through. He didn't even text back and say, what's up with that sermon title? But maybe you're thinking, what, why is he, well, I want you to remember this sermon title. So, okay, so the representation of his, of his substance, the representation of his substance, and I want you to remember this title because it's a very important phrase that's drawn from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. So if you'll look with me at verse 3, if you're looking at an ESV like I am, you'll find the phrase in there, the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. What this is saying is that the Lord Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. And another way you could translate that phrase is the representation of, of his substance, okay? So the the word imprint has the idea that someone has taken something like a stamp that you might use on on a clay vessel or on a coin or something like that, and you've mashed it into that soft surface, and then and then it's hardened so that it now looks like what the imprint or what the the stamp wanted it to look like. But this is not just a reflection, this is the imprint of who he is. Thus, the exact imprint of his nature. Some translations will render it something like uh, the exact representation of his being. Okay, And the reason I use the word substance in the title is because this particular Greek word, which is this term, hypostasis, which uh, you might recognize that from a phrase like hypostatic union. That's where we get that, that phrase. This word is translated into Latin, substantia, and then uh, that Latin is translated into English, as we will read later in the service in our Athanasian Creed, 
Uh, it's, it's translated with this word substance. So today we will read this phrase in the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons, meaning we're not mixing up the Father with the Son or the Spirit with the Son. We don't confound the persons. They are distinct and separate from one, separate from one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, nor dividing the substance. And that word substance comes from this Greek word hypostasis, right here in, in Hebrews 1.3. And, and Hebrews 1.3 is telling us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's substance or his nature, meaning what the Father is is what Jesus is. So this, this awful English phrase, I know it's a clunky English phrase. I was an English major. It didn't help me with a phrase like this. I'm sort of stuck with the language that we use in, in theological discourse. The, the representation of his substance, that phrase is coming right out of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The exact imprint of his nature. And you might say, why didn't you just use the exact imprint of his nature? Well, because I wanted you to connect the language of Hebrews 1, 3 to the language that we're going to confess uh, when we recite the Athanasian Creed. I would also just note here that later in the Creed, it will speak of the Lord Jesus. And it, in, this is in a part that we'll read a couple of Sundays from today. It'll say, God of the substance of his Father. And that's that same word. And then it'll say, and man of the substance of his mother. And again, this is that same word. We, we are looking this morning at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And, and right, right here at the, at the beginning, I want to say this passage is beyond our ability to get our arms around everything that's going on here. This passage is one of the, the highest and deepest statements in the scriptures of how God has revealed himself and who Jesus Christ is, who the Lord Jesus is. It, it is worshipful just to read this passage and contemplate what is affirmed here. And uh, one of the reasons that I want to start with that phrase right there at the beginning in the middle of verse 3, the exact imprint of his nature, is because that phrase is the capstone of this whole passage. Th this passage is, is chiastically structured. Uh, the word chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. And often in these chiastic structures, the most important idea is going to be right in the middle at the turning point. And that's where this phrase is, the exact imprint of his nature. And so as we walk through these, this passage, what we're going to be considering is uh, the, these, three, these three things that I've articulated several times now, how God has revealed himself, who Jesus Christ is, and how we should respond. Okay, so, so how God has revealed himself, look there at that phrase there in verse 3, the Lord Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Now, we'll, we'll come back to some of these ideas, but, but this is getting at the way that, as we confess in the Athanasian Creed, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The, the Son is generated by who the Father is. Now, we, we are using human language, and, and the author of Hebrews is using human language to describe these things, and that's the best we can do because we have human limitations. But we, we can't allow ourselves to apply the human limitations to God. So when we speak of the Father begetting the Son, we don't think in human terms. 
we think in terms of the Father being one who, who generates things. This is who God is. God is an infinite fountain of life. He is, he is inconceivably, boundlessly, unlimitedly creative. And, and ideas and life and newness is ever flowing from him because of who he is. And everything that he is is generated in the Lord Jesus. And it's really one of the most worshipful things that you can, you can begin to imagine. We were thinking about this as Randall read John 1 earlier. You know, humans, as humans, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing something that Herman Bovink uh, says in, his, in this book that I've got up here. Humans, we take a lot of words to say things. But when the Father goes to communicate, he communicates the Lord Jesus, the Word. In the, and, and the Word has become flesh as the communication of the Father to us. And, and in the Lord Jesus, we have one who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. You, you see that phrase there in verse 3, the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus is. So how has God revealed himself to us? He has revealed himself to us in his Son, I'm not going to take the time to pull out my phone and get the quotation, but I took a picture this morning of this statement that John Calvin makes. And and Calvin said something to the effect of the contemplation of God is almost like looking at light that is just too dazzling for us until we see the beam that is the Lord Jesus. And, And when we see Jesus, when we contemplate how he came as a man, how he was born of woman, And then how he lived this righteous life. Now, God has revealed himself to us in a way that that our eyes can actually behold. So how has God revealed himself to us? Well, he's revealed himself to us in his son, in the Lord Jesus, who is the exact imprint of his nature. And we'll, we'll have more to say about some of these ideas as we move through this passage. Right before Uh, that phrase in verse 3 there. So I'm going to work from the middle of this out to the the outer rings. You can think of this in terms of of that that letter X, you know, a chiasm, or you can think in terms of rings. And and we've started at the very center, and now we're going to spiral out through the passage. Okay, so right before that phrase, the exact imprint of his nature in verse 3, you see those beautiful words at the beginning of verse 3, he is the radiance of of the glory of God. That's who Jesus is. He, he, when you see Jesus, you are seeing the shining glory of God. When, when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you are reading about the radiance of the glory of God. And then across from that idea of, of Christ being the radiance of the glory of God, look at the 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 next phrase after the exact imprint of his nature there in verse 3, it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This means that the Lord Jesus is in sovereign control of everything that happens. This means that if the Lord Jesus were to stop upholding the universe by the word of his power, the, the elements would disintegrate the, the, the planets would spin out of control. Gravity would cease to function, and we would float off into outer space. 
He is upholding the universe by the word of his power. This is one of the reasons we need to be grateful. So here's how God has revealed himself, how we should respond. We should be grateful that the Lord Jesus is consistent and that he doesn't stop making it so that oxygen keeps us alive. He doesn't stop making it so that water fuels our bodies so that we can live. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power. The radiance of the glory of God and the one who is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Uh, God's, uh, the, there's a, a catechism uh, question that says, what are God's works of providence? And the answer is, God's works of providence are his holy, wise, and powerful acts by which he sustains and governs all his creatures and all their actions. That's what the Lord is, Jesus is doing right here, according to Hebrews 1.3 in this phrase. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let me invite you to respond to this verse by worshiping the Lord Jesus right now. And, and just by praising him in your heart and thinking something like this in, 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 in your own soul, you are amazing. It is amazing that the Lord Jesus can hold the universe together by his word. I mean, I speak a word and my kids won't obey me, <laughs> right? But he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. It's astonishing. And, and it, it, it does not, we, we've started at the center and we've spiraled out from he is the exact imprint of his nature to the radiance of the glory of God and then to upholding the universe by the word of his power. It, it's not like it doesn't continue to get better. I mean, any, any direction you move as you go through this passage, it, it gets, it, it's just more fuel for worship. So if you look at the last phrase of verse 2, it says, through whom also he created the world. Now I want to tell you what the balancing phrase is, and then we'll come back and think about this, this idea that God created the world through the Lord Jesus. The balancing phrase is... Um, the one after he upholds the universe by the word of his power, where it says, after making purification for sins. That's the phrase that balances through whom also he created the world. After making purification for sins. So he created and he purifies. This is, this is glorious. Um, and we'll, we'll, um, I'll, I'll elaborate on this more in, in the, the purification idea in just a moment. Let me start with the idea of uh, through whom also he created the world. We measure time. I'm going to talk about creation, but let me first talk about time. We measure time as the, the earth is spinning on its axis and, and rotating in its orbit around the sun. That's how we count moments and hours and days and months and years. I mean, we could throw the moons, you know. This is how we measure time. So if the Lord Jesus is the one through whom God created the world, he is there before time began. If you can get your, arm, if you can get your, your mental arms around this concept, it will help you think in terms of Christ being eternal, Christ being before the foundation of the world, we might say, as Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus is the one through whom God created the world, so he, is, he exists above and beyond time. 
He is the one through whom God created the world. This means he is not part of the creation. It means that he is the creator with the Father. And and you put this idea of through whom he created the world with him being the exact imprint of his nature, and and we're building our, our conception of the Trinity because what we're seeing is that the Father has generated the Son, and then together, the Father and the Son, the Father through the Son, has created the world. Now, um, before I, I say more, I, I want to I bring in another concept here, and that is that um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the author of Hebrews is going to start with some big ideas that he's going to also finish with in his whole letter. So, so in other words, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the author of Hebrews wants us to read Hebrews chapter 1 in light of some statements that he makes in Hebrews chapter 13. So I want to I bring in at this point Hebrews 13 verse 8, which says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. This means he doesn't change. If you've, ever, if you've ever thought to yourself, why is it that Christians talk about God being immutable or unchangeable? That's one of the reasons right there, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to talk, like in Hebrews 2, about the Lord Jesus being made perfect through suffering, for instance. This doesn't mean that there was any, any lack of perfection in him. It doesn't mean that he's somehow been altered to the better. No, it means he has completed his course and he has finished the mission, and the mission on which the Father sent him. And all statements like that that we're going to find in Hebrews are going to pertain to the mission that the, that the Father sent the Son to the earth to accomplish. But, and, and so the author of Hebrews, he's going to move back and forth between things that you can say about Jesus as God and things that you can say about Jesus as man. So when we're talking about Jesus as God, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is immutable and unchangeable. And he is, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. The Father has eternally begotten the Son of himself. And this happened prior to creation in eternity past. And, and thus, uh, through whom also, at the end of verse 2, he created the world. Now, I do want to, uh, to read um, a statement from Herman Bavink because I think he puts, he puts this so well. Um, he, he, sa- he says... Um, of, of the Lord Jesus being begotten of the Father, he says he was not brought forth by the will of the Father out of nothing and in time. And we can just contrast that with creation, right? God created out of nothing, and when he created the world, he set time in motion. Rather, he is generated out of the being of the Father in eternity. Hence, instead of viewing generation as an actual work, a performance of the Father, we should ascribe to the Father a generative nature. In other words, this is just what the Father does, is he generates the Son. This is who he is. 
So, you know, artists, they create art. Matt writes music. Um, Kellen paints glorious pictures. Uh, and, and we could go on this way. This is what artists do. But with the Father, he is, he is generating the Son. It's amazing. It, it, that's fuel for worship. That, that out of himself, the Father has generated the eternal second person of the Godhead. There is none like God. And, and, this, and then Bavink continues on the next page. He says of this, It is not something that was completed and finished at some point in eternity, but an eternal, unchanging act of God, at once always complete and eternally ongoing. This is glorious. This is, I think this is a beautiful, that's a great statement of how the Trinity, how the members of the Trinity relate to one another, that the Father's generation of the Son is eternally complete and ongoing. So he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, through whom also he created the world. Now let's just think about some, some passages that are going to support this idea or say this same idea through whom also he created the world from elsewhere in the Bible. Um, and God said, let there be. So by means of his word, as we read in, in Psalm 33, um, by the word of the Lord, Psalm 33, 6 says, were the heavens made. Now, the idea that the word is going to become flesh is implicit in those statements in the Old Testament. And then as we continue into the New Testament and, and, and the, the revelation of the incarnation is made, it's as though we, we take these steps forward in the progress of revelation and John teaches us in the beginning was the word, echoing the language of Genesis 1.1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is telling us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he, as he continues, John 1.14, the Word became flesh. Oh, also John 1 there, um, uh, through whom uh, all things were made, and without him was not anything made that has been made. So again, God the Father creates the world through Christ the Son through whom also he created the world. Um, if you were here last week, we talked about, was it last week or the week before? Last week that I preached? Exodus 35 through 40, thank you. Yeah, sometimes I get I lose, lose track of... Last week, we talked about Exodus 35 through 40, which had to do with the building of the tabernacle. And we talked about how the tabernacle was like a small-scale representation of creation. And so... So what, what the author of Hebrews is saying, this is going to become important for what we're going to see as we move forward. The author of Hebrews is saying that it's through Christ that the, the, the real thing that's represented by the tabernacle was made. This is important because in chapter 3, he's going to compare Moses and Jesus, and he's going to compare the little tabernacle in which Moses was faithful to the real thing. The universe in which, the whole thing in which Christ was not only faithful, but also the builder of the world. So there's this relationship between the tabernacle and creation, and, and it was through Christ that God created the world. And then look at that corresponding phrase there in verse 3, after making purification for sins. This is really interesting because the word, I think this is interesting, the word that's, that's translated purification here 
that Greek word is used to translate both references to atonement and references to sacrifices of purification. And, and it's found in contexts, particularly, that speak of the, clean, the, the, the building of the tabernacle and the cleansing of the tabernacle. So the author of Hebrews, it's like he's, he's using these Old Testament contexts to say, Jesus has purified the cosmic temple the way that Aaron and, and the other priests serve to do this for the tabernacle and then the temple in the Old Testament. Jesus has accomplished the fulfillment of what those sacrifices pointed forward to. He built the world. He cleanses the world. He built the world. Adam defiles it. We defile it. And then he makes purification for sins. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. And if you're visiting Kenwood Baptist Church here this morning, we want you to know that the hope of the world is the fact that Christ has made purification for sins. Christ has made it. The Lord Jesus has made it so that the, the just displeasure of God against sin has been taken away through his death and the stain, the defilement, the, the residual disfigurement, the impurity, the, the, the way that things have been polluted by our choices and our actions, all of that, because of Christ, has been cleansed after making purification for sins. If you're here this morning and you're considering Christianity, we want you to know that the message is, because of Jesus... The sins have been forgiven. You've been reconciled to God. And if lingering guilts plague you, if lingering questions about the ramifications of what you've done or th this, this kind of gnawing anxiety about what you've done, all of that can be answered because he made purification for sins. All of that can be dealt with. Uh, in, in the next rings outward. So we've got in the very center the exact imprint of his nature and then the radiance of the glory of God, him upholding the universe by the word of his power. And then uh, him, he created the world and he made purification for sins. The, the next two rings, if you look at uh, the previous clause in verse 2, it says, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And then the corresponding phrase to that is he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And these two naturally go together, don't they? Because the, the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high is clearly going to be the heir of the king who is on the throne. That's, that's the way the logic is working. But, but here is, here's one of the places where our, our human terminology and even the human uh, concepts that, we're work, that the author of Hebrews is working with here, we have to recognize that these are going to break down on us. The, these, this is analogous language because when we talk about an heir, we're talking about a father who's going to die and leave his resources to the one who's going to inherit from him. Well, that's not ever going to happen because God the Father is never going to die. It's not going to work that way. So, so this language of, of father and son and and Christ being appointed as the heir, it has to be recognized as language that is helpful for us 
to understand the relationship, but it's analogous language to what's going on in human relationships. It's not, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between the way that somebody dies in our world and a descendant or someone else inherits them, inherits their belongings. That's not going to happen. Christ is the heir of all things. And he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. But, but it's always going to be that way. There, there's not going to come a time when the father leaves the throne and, and the heir takes over. That, that's not the way it's going to work. So we're, we're kind of up against the limitations of our understanding. And, and you know, if, if you're a person struggling with pride, as I think we probably all are, I think that these realities are, are one, of the, one of the best ways to learn humility. Thinking about God and, and thinking about how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another and, and thinking about what we can actually know about these things will force us to our knees. I, I don't know anyone that I'm more impressed with intellectually than this guy Herman Bavink. And, and I want to read to you this statement that he makes in response to, to the very thing I'm talking about right here. He says, in using these terms, we are, of course, speaking in a human and hence an imperfect language, a fact that makes us cautious. I mean, Herman Bavink is saying, I, I'm recognizing that I'm, I'm using human language, which, which makes me cautious. Th this is... This is how we should respond to the knowledge of God. Not with the idea that the, the Bible is imperfect. The Bible is, is perfect in everything that it says. It's true in everything that it teaches. It is totally true and trustworthy. But we are imperfect. And we are trying to contemplate the, the eternal and holy one. How God has revealed himself in Christ. Who Jesus Christ is, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the, the uh, radiance uh, of the glory of God. He is the bearer of the universe by the word of his power. He's the maker of the world and the cleanser of its stain. He's the heir of all things. And he is the ruler. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high there in verse 3. He is the heir and the ruler. Let's think first about this idea of him being the ruler. He's the ruler of all things. And, and you recognize in those, that language, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1, where the, where the Lord, David says, says to my Lord, David's Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He is the one who is going to reign. He sat down he completed his work, he made purification for sins, and then he sat, this is going to be exposited as we continue through the letter, then he sat down because his work was completed at the right hand of the majesty, the great one on high, in the heavenlies. And again, these are, these are concepts that, that are, they have to be understood as uh, uses of human language because it's not, it's, it's not as though God who is spirit, who is om, omnipresent, is actually located in the heavenlies up there somewhere. That, that's not the way it works. He's invisible, he's immaterial, and, and yet he does reign. And Christ is, in our, in our way of conceiving things, Christ is seated at his right hand. Now let's move to this idea of 
the heir of all things. I wonder if, I wonder if maybe other passages from the Bible come to mind when you think of Christ being the heir of all things and the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Perhaps, perhaps Matthew 28, 29, yeah, 28, 18 comes to mind. Um, he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then you know the next words, right? Therefore go and make disciples. He's the king. He is the king and he is the exact representation of the nature, the being of the father. And if you will contemplate these realities, if you'll get your mind around these realities, if your contemplation of God will will begin to eclipse your contemplation of, I don't know what you think about, movies, batting averages, um, uh, your fantasy football league, uh, college football. I, I don't know what distracts you from these things, but if your contemplation of God will eclipse your contemplation of all this other stuff, this, this call to go make disciples is going to take over. And, and it's going to become your primary concern to be teaching that people should obey everything that Jesus commanded because he's Lord. He, he's God. And, and it's going to be the burden that you increasingly feel because he's the judge. And they're going to stand before him. So how God has revealed himself, who Jesus Christ is, how we should respond. This passage will fuel your evangelistic efforts. This passage will push you over that line between the contemplation. Do I put myself out there? Do I go there with this person? Do I say the words? And, and I think that if you will contemplate who God is, and if you will think about who Jesus is, and if you'll think about him saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. It's going to be an easy choice. Absolutely, I'm going there. Absolutely, I'm saying the words. And it's not, it doesn't have to be something difficult. Do you go to church anywhere? When's the last time you, you gathered with a group of Christians to sing the praise of the Lord Jesus? Would you like to go to church with me? Would you, would you like to talk about the gospel? Would you like to sit down and read the Bible together and consider who Jesus is together? He is... The heir of all things, and he is the one who sits at the right hand. He's the heir and ruler. Now, this, this phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things, I think if we ask the question, when did that happen? It's another one of those things that's going to take us right up to the mystery of who God is. When did God appoint Christ the heir of all things? And here again, I want to I lean on good old Herman. He writes this, Herman Bavink says, On the day the Lord anointed and appointed him as king, he generated him as son and gave him the right to rule the world. And you can hear all this language from Hebrews 1, uh, 1 to 4 here, can't you? He says, with a view to David, so he's talking about when David, for instance, wrote Psalm 2, um, he said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. With a view to David, this refers back to God's decree in 2 Samuel 7. I, I really appreciate Bob Inc. referring to the unfolding of this in history as it develops. But then he says, um, 
with a view to the Messiah, whom David foreshadowed, it is interpreted as referring to the eternity in which Christ as the Son is generated by the Father, that is, in which he is brought forth as the effulgence of God's glory and the express image of his nature. Furthermore, according to Acts 13.33 and Romans 1.4, you know, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. He was proved to be God's Son with power by the resurrection from the dead. So it's almost like we can give two answers to this question. When was Christ appointed heir of all things? On, on the human level, we can say when God raised him from the dead, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. He completed his work. He was made perfect through the suffering. And the resurrection announces this is the heir of all things. At the divine level, though, at the, at the level of the, the, the relations between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this happened in eternity past, that the Father appointed him the heir of all things. Now, this brings us to the, the outer edges of the rings. And I want to look with you first at the, at the, at the top of the chiasm, or the, you know, the, the start of the ring, this phrase in, in, in verses 1 and 2, these, these statements. The author of Hebrews begins, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, I think he's talking about everything from the Lord revealing himself to Abraham in Genesis 15, you know, Abraham has the dream and he sees a vision. And, and Genesis 18, these angelic visitors come to Abraham all the way through Moses. Uh, you'll remember that when we were in Exodus 3.1, it says, the, the burning bush passage, it actually says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And then you continue right through the Old Testament all the way to the end with Malachi. God spoke to our fathers those Old Testament figures, by the prophets. And, and I think it's important to recognize he did this in many cases through angels. That's going to become significant for just a moment. And then he continues, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then it goes on talking about who Jesus is. Now let's just, let's just I just want to set the parallel statements between those two statements, between those two utterances God spoke to our fathers, and he spoke to us uh, across from one another. So the opening phrase, long ago, that's talking about the old covenant time, is matched by the phrase, but in these last days. And um, I think it would be better if the ESV were to render this, in these latter days. Because the, the particular expression that's used here, in these la that's translated by the ESV, in these last days, that, that Greek expression always translates in the, in, from, the, from the Old Testament in Hebrew into the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It always translates an expression that's rendered in the latter days. And, and in the Old Testament, those references to the latter days are always pointing forward to the time of the Messiah, the time of the Lord Jesus. So long ago, but in these last days. And then it says, God spoke. And then that's matched by, he has spoken. And then, to our fathers, those figures in the Old Testament, that's matched by, to us. And then, by the prophets, it's matched by, by his son. So the author of Hebrews is, 
is emphasizing and accentuating how significant it, it is that we get to hear from the Son of God, that God has revealed himself in his Son. Now, before uh, we look at the corresponding uh, lower ring or the, you know, the, the, the bottom tip of the, the chiastic structure, I want to draw your attention to Hebrews 2.2, 2, where speaking of the Old Testament, it says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. He's talking about the Old Testament. So for the author of Hebrews, um, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets by means of angels. And I think that's why he says in 1.4, Hebrews 1.4 of Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So maybe some of these people were tempted to be a little bit too interested in angels, but definitely the old covenant revelation came through angels, and Jesus is greater than, than they are. Jesus has inherited, as Paul puts it, the name that is above every name, and God has revealed himself in these last days, in these latter days, by his Son, so Son of God is a more significant name than uh, messenger or angel, as he will develop, the author of Hebrews will, as he continues. So he's telling us, the author of Hebrews is, that Christ is the Son and the revealer of God. That Christ is the heir and the ruler. He's the maker and cleanser, the radiance and the bearer of the universe. He is the substance of the Father. Now what I've done is I've just walked down through those, chias, those corresponding rings in the chiasm. I'm going to do that again, starting from the center. He's the substance, that's the center point, of the Father. The radiant sustainer of all things. The cleansing, the, sorry, the creating purifier of the world. The inheriting ruler and the superior revealing son. That's who the the author of Hebrews is telling us the Lord Jesus is. We could also say he's a greater prophet because God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets, but now he's spoken to us by his son. He's the fulfillment of the priest because he made purification for sins, and he is our true king because he has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, just a, a thought or two about, uh, well, actually five thoughts about how we should respond and um, the, here again, I'm going to lean on the correspondences between Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 13. So I, I want you to understand how I'm putting this together. I think that in, the, in Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews is actually applying the message of Hebrews 1. It's like he's saying, if this is who Jesus is, this is how you should live. And he shows us that by telling us in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So here's what he tells us to do. Um, he tells us in Hebrews 13, verse 5, uh, sorry, let me start in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So he's calling for a high view of marriage and he's calling for sexual purity. What is going to make... Christians live in that countercultural, maybe even counter-human instinct way. What's going to bring that about? Christology is going to bring that about. Your, your contemplation of the Trinity 
is going to bring that about. Your understanding of who God is and how he has revealed himself in Christ and how you should respond is going to bring that about. The, the story and the, and the revelation of who Christ is is what results in the behavior. The liberating truth of Hebrews 1 enables the obedience commanded in Hebrews 13. Who Christ is results in what we do because what we do flows from what we believe, what we desire, what we tolerate, and what we cultivate. And if you know who Christ is, and you know who God is, and you know who God, how God has revealed himself, then what you cultivate, and what you tolerate, and what you desire is going to be transformed. And you will hold marriage in honor, and you will seek to keep the marriage bed undefiled. You'll also, verse 5 of, of Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, you may, you may say to me, well, I don't love money. I bet you're tempted to envy in some way. If you're tempted to envy in some way, if you're tempted to look at other people and what they have, maybe what they get to do or, or maybe the children they get to have or maybe how their children live or whatever the case may be, maybe you're tempted by the fact that somebody else has a job you want. I don't know. If, if you know who Christ is, and you know how God has revealed himself, and you know how he's achieved purification, I think it'll be easy for you to say, I'm going to be content with what I have. Because he has said, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you. Now, we could, we could go on this way, but, I, but I, let me summarize. In Hebrews 1... Revelation from God through Christ is better than Old Covenant revelation through angels. And, and interestingly, in Hebrews 13, he starts in verse 1 mentioning angels, and then he mentions Jesus in verse 8. So there's like this Jesus-angels thing in Hebrews 1 and in Hebrews 13. Secondly, because of who Christ is and what he has done, I didn't mention this, but also in Hebrews 13, he calls people to remember those who are persecuted and in prison, those who are being mistreated. Um, also, uh, Hebrews 1, Christ has made purification for sins, so Hebrews 13, Old Testament food laws and sacrifices are fulfilled and nullified because Christ suffered outside the gates. In Hebrews 1, God revealed himself through prophets in the Old Covenant, so Hebrews 13 calls people to honor and submit to their leaders and to pray for them and then to greet the leaders and the saints. So the high doctrinal truths about Christ in Hebrews 1 lead to Hebrews 13, the prayer that God will equip the people, Hebrews 13, 21, with everything good to do God's will. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. This is what Hebrews is calling us to. Let's pray together. Father, would you make it so that our worship of you in private and in public matches how we, how we think we should live, what thoughts we cultivate, what desires and 
meditations we allow to have space in our heads and in our hearts. Lord, would you make it so that who you are and who Christ is and how you've revealed yourself in him cleanses all of our impurity, even the impurity that we want to hold on to. Lord, make us new. Cause us to be transformed as with unveiled faces we behold your glory in the face of Christ. And Lord, we pray that that this would bear fruit in glad-hearted, eager efforts at evangelism and discipleship. We pray that it would bear fruit in a high view of marriage and a commitment to purity. We pray that it would bear fruit in a love for one another where we are earnestly committed to one another and we are considering one another as more significant than ourselves. Lord, make us like Christ, we pray, because of how you've revealed yourself to us in him, because of who he is, and because this is how we should respond. Lord, we ask that you do it in his name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.